chapter 3. of Malachi. This is message number seven, entitled, Get Ready. So we're going to look beginning in verse 13 of chapter three through the end of this book in chapter four and verse number six. So this will be our final message in the book of Malachi. So let's begin our reading here with verse number 13 of chapter three. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, What have we spoken so much against thee? Ye have said, It is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him. For them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall, and ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb, for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So the fifth conflict in the book of Malachi is there in chapter 3, verses 6 to 12 that we looked at last time. And in that conflict, Israel is charged with robbing God. Now, though they had many different complaints against God, the prophet Malachi brought numerous indictments against Israel, including robbing God. Of course, They had no idea how they had robbed God or why they should be accused of it. Well, they had robbed God by not giving tithes and offerings according to the Old Covenant law. Now, in some cases, we had a little more details of what they were doing in terms of the offering of the unacceptable animals that we saw earlier in the book of Malachi. So we're not told in what all ways that they were robbing God in these tithes and offerings, but in some way they were keeping back. They weren't fulfilling the old covenant law concerning these tithes and offerings. Now they had complained against God uh, that even though they were in Jerusalem, uh, in the surrounding area um, after the exile, they had a temple, they had the walls of the city, they had a priesthood, they had the Levites that were serving, but still yet they were not enjoying the kingdom conditions that had been prophesied of Israel's restoration. Now God is plain in this conflict that they are under the curses because of their sin and he challenges them to faithfulness according to the old covenant law and to see whether they experience those promised blessings well on the one hand it was hypocritical for israel to complain 
that God hasn't kept his covenant promises, when Israel had not kept the covenant um, since it had been given to them. And on the other hand, we learn in this part of the passage that God doesn't change. So the promises to Israel will be fulfilled to the preserved nation, to the people to whom the land promises were made. Now, God repeated certain promises or conditions that will occur within the, with or with accompanying the future day of the Lord. Israel's enemies will be destroyed and the nation will be gathered and restored to the land and the nations of the earth be subjected to them. Now, the sixth and final conflict that finishes out the prophecy of Malachi, beginning here in verse 13 of chapter 3, and essentially running through uh, verse 3 of chapter 4, and then there's just uh, those last three verses that sort of give a conclusion um, to the book of Malachi. The theme of the day of the Lord began back in the beginning of chapter number 3, and it continues and runs all the way to the end. In fact, the day of the Lord is not mentioned until almost the very end of the book um, in verse number 5. But that day and the coming day and all, all that sort of reference that has been made is, is seen that it is a reference to the coming day of the Lord. So the future orientation of the book of Malachi shows Israel um, that the present for them is not the fulfillment or the time of the fulfillment, but they must look to the future to see their hope. Now, in the end, Israel has questioned whether it has been worth it. Is it worth it to obey God and to keep his covenant? Or what is the benefit of it? That is what they have questioned. So as we look at this last passage in the book of Malachi, in verses 13 to 15, we see the final charge that is made against Israel. In verses 16 through chapter 4 and verse number 3, we get a description of that day, referring to the day of the Lord. And in verses 4 to 6, we get the conclusion of the prophecy of Malachi and indeed the prophecy of the Old Testament. So let's begin with verses 13 to 15, where we see this final charge against Israel. So verse 13, Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, What have we spoken so much against thee? Israel had spoken stout or strong or hard words against the Lord. Now the same word is actually used several times in Exodus to refer to Pharaoh's hard heart or hardened heart. So the implication here is that these were hard words. These were words of stubbornness. These were words of rebellion. These were words much like the words of Pharaoh, words that were not listening to the Lord, but were rather making charges against him. And as with the other charges that we have seen brought against Israel in Malachi's prophecy, they question how that this is so. <laughs> how have we spoken such hard words against the Lord? And it's as, it's, it's as though they, they object that they haven't spoken these hard words. And then, of course, we are given the example. Verse 14, Ye have said, It is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? So verses 14 and 15 
give these hard words that they have spoken. Now, the general statement starts here with with verse number 14, and the general statement they've made is that it's worthless, it's useless to serve the Lord. There's no profit in it. There's no profit in keeping his commandments. There's no profit in mourning before him. And I believe this will be a reference back to verse number 13 in chapter 2 where uh, Malachi talked about the many tears that they gave um, with their offerings and all those things that, that the Lord said that he did not accept. But they saw this as, as genuine service. And they said there, there hasn't been any profit in it. In other words, um, a, a profit would be to, to be to the better. And, and I think even the word that's used here um, quite literally refers to the cut. Um, you know, where's our cut? You know, we've, we've done this work. And, I, and as I under, understood some of the uh, reading uh, up on it, that it was used even to refer to um, weaving of cloth. And so once a, a cloth would be um, woven or whatever, it would be cut from the loom. And so if you had um, paid someone or, or the work was done, you know, to cut that cloth, and then you would receive the cut. That would be your cloth that you would get from the womb, and the loom, rather. And uh, I understand that, that word was used in, in that way in, in ancient times. But regardless, the word certainly is expressing that they felt like they were not better off they were not enhanced in any way. They had, they had not received or been contributed to for all their keeping of God's commandments, for all their mourning, for all the religious activities and practices that they have done. These things have, have been worthless because they've not brought about the conditions of the blessings that they were seeking. So again, it's, it's been a little over 100 years since the first return to Jerusalem after the exile. There's, they've had a temple uh, now for some time. They've had the walls of Jerusalem for some time. The, the Levites have been put into place, and the priests have been put into place, and they've got sacrifices, and they've got a, a functioning temple and, and priesthood. and They've got all these things, but still yet, they realize that they are very far short from realizing the prophecies pertaining to their restoration to the land. And so this is the complaint that they've had against God. What, ha, what, what really has been the point? What has been the point in all this trouble? What has been the point of all these things that we're going through? What has been the point of maybe denying ourselves um, other things that we could have had when ultimately we haven't got what we've wanted? We haven't been profited. Verse 15 and now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. In other words, Israel was saying they've not fared better than the proud wicked. So for all, all the things that they have done and observed, uh, even though they have observed them in a very half-hearted manner, as has been brought out in the book of Malachi, but still yet, for all the things they have done and have observed, the wicked are better off. They look at the proud wicked and they see that they have prospered. They have even tested God by pushing the boundaries of their wickedness. And they have seemed to sin with impunity. There has been no punishment on them, no correction. They only seem to thrive all the more. And the, the description here is that they're happy, they're set up or they're built up. 
and, and they, um, they are delivered or, or they have escaped even by, from testing God. So in other words, the wicked are getting away with it. They're prospering more than those of Israel who are trying to keep the covenant, though their effort is, again, rather half-hearted. So what has been the use? These are the hard words. These are the rebellious words, God says, that those in Israel have spoken against him. So now we get to this next part, beginning here with verse number 16, where we get this description from here into chapter 4 and verse number 3 of that day, that day of the Lord, that future day that is coming. Now notice what he says beginning here, verse 16. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. Now as you're reading this complaint, this controversy um, against Israel, this conflict, realize that verse number 16 is, is marking a turn here. So you have those in Israel that have spoken hard words against the Lord, but there are also some in Israel who are fearing the Lord and are speaking to one another. In other words, within Israel, there was a remnant of faithful believers. They weren't all like the priests that we read about in the opening of the prophecy of Malachi. They weren't all like the people that we have read about in a number of the conflicts as well. There was a remnant of faithful believers. They did not speak against the Lord, but rather it says they spoke to one another. In other words, they they spoke to encourage one another. They were in just as as bad condition as many others, but rather than complaining against the Lord, they were encouraging one another. They, They were encouraging one another to keep the faith. They were encouraging one another to keep the covenant as God had given it. So just as God on the one hand knows the sinful words and the sinful doings in Israel, and those have been exposed time and time again in in the prophecy of Malachi. He knows their sinful words. He knows their sinful thoughts. He knows their sinful actions. But he also knows the words and the doings of that faithful remnant as well. And in fact, this whole verse speaks about the fact that God does know. God does know about this remnant. He does know about their faith. He does know about their works and about their words. And we're told here essentially that God has marked them. Those who trust in him, those who fear him. It says are written in a book of remembrance, which essentially means that they will not be forgotten. It's not possible that they're going to be forgotten or um, neglected or overlooked. So within Israel, it seems that There were some of the faithful. They feared the Lord, but yet it seems that they feared being swept away in the judgment on the unfaithful. And that would not be an uncommon fear. God speaks through the prophet Malachi. Now we can see that he's giving assurance and he's giving comfort to encourage their hearts. He knows them. He knows he's written down their names, he's telling them. In in other words, he he will not forget them. 
They will not be swept away and cut off right along with the wicked in those judgments, particularly in that future day of the Lord. The encouragement continues in verse number 17. And they, speaking of that, those that feared the Lord, that faithful remnant, they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts. In that day, when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. So looking forward to that future day of the Lord, he promises to spare the faithful remnant, to spare those who fear him, those who trust in him, those who have faith, who trust in the Lord. They will not be swept away and cut off with the wicked. Again, just as God knows the thoughts and intentions of the hearts of the wicked, God also knows the thoughts and the intentions of of the hearts of the righteous and he will not cut them off along with the wicked his jewels he speaks of in that day of visitation that day of the lord that that is that's prophesied in numerous places in the old testament and new testament as well his jewels refers to his particular treasure it's very similar to the passage in exodus chapter 19 verses 5 and 6 where he speaks of israel as his peculiar treasure and as his own possession israel is is his own possession he has chosen this treasure and and when you go through um the books of moses and, and how all of that unfolds and develops and you get over there to deuteronomy when Moses is speaking to that second generation on the plains of Moab, God is, is telling them, I didn't choose you because you were the greatest nation. I didn't choose you because you were the mightiest nation. I didn't choose you because you had the greatest in number of any nation on the earth. I didn't choose you for anything like that. I chose you because I loved you, God says to them. I chose you. I loved you. I set my affection on you. I chose you for my own possession, my own peculiar treasure he speaks of israel as his heritage as is his inheritance just like um the the tribe of of benjamin might speak of of their inheritance and and the tribe of judah might speak of their inheritance that land and that lot in the land promised to abraham well he's, israel is god's inheritance is god's heritage is god's particular treasure and in that day of visitation When he comes as a refiner to purge and to purify, he says he's going to make up his jewels. That means out of that nation of Israel, he's going to collect his precious treasures, the faithful remnant. Now, obviously, this connects very much with the refining imagery of purifying metal. For when when one is purifying metal, that process of refining using this this great amount of of extensive amount of heat that is used, it doesn't destroy the metal. It doesn't obliterate the metal, but it is a process that makes the metal more pure by removing the dross that has been intermingled with the metal. It makes it a more pure form. So likewise, the day of the Lord will purify Israel by removing the dross of the arrogant wicked and leaving the pure treasure of Israel in faith. Verse 18. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. In that day, God says, 
the difference between the righteous and the wicked will be clear. It will be evident to all. As we start, started this passage, Israel was questioning what value it was to serve the Lord because it seemed like there was really no difference between them and the wicked. And if anything, the wicked were doing better than what they were. And the Lord says, in that day, you will, you will see, you will discern a difference between the righteous and the wicked. And the way that God deals with one and the way that he deals with the other. Now, the description of that day that follows, uh, or follows rather, in, in the following verses, but right here, it's being made very clear that God knows and distinguishes between those who fear him and those who don't. So the comforting promise to the suffering faithful is that they'll, they'll not be swept away, they'll not be cut off with the wicked in that day. Just because they, are all, they all belong to Israel doesn't mean that they're all going to be swept away. And the warning to the proud and the wicked is that they will not be gathered up with the righteous to enjoy the blessings, but will be cut off without inheritance. So just because they belong to Israel, it doesn't mean that they will be restored and that they will enjoy those blessings either. So it's a comfort and it's a warning. And then we get into this description these first three verses of chapter number four that describe these judgments of the day of the Lord. Verse one, for behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. So we use this, he uses this imagery again of fire and a, and a great burning. And it's describing this future judgment, this day of the Lord that is to come. So the Lord's coming is depicted here as a sweeping fire that burns with intense heat. And it burns up all of the wicked like straw down to the very roots. So imagine the, the extensiveness, the, the intensity of a fire that sweeps through, burning up everything in its path and even all of the vegetation down to the very roots beneath the soil so that it is all destroyed and consumed. Well, that's the picture that's being described here in verse 1. The wicked, those who do not fear the Lord, those who do not trust Him, those who do not believe Him, those who reject His uh, Messiah, those who reject his law, those who reject his word, all, all, they will be totally consumed. He says down, he will not leave root or branch. They'll be totally consumed and cut off from the earth, meaning disinherited. And though they may have biologically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they will be cut out and cut off from the earth and have no inheritance in that kingdom that comes with the coming of the Lord. Now again, this language used of the day of the Lord depicts uh, a suddenness and a thoroughness. In other words, what's described here, and, and we 
spent some time, again, I think it's been a couple of years now since we were in our systematic study and we talked about eschatology and we talked about events, how the Bible describes events. And this day of the Lord is an event. It is something that happens. It's something that takes place. This is not some sort of general description of history as it unfolds through the ages and and, um, ultimately this or that happens. This is not a slow burn attrition of the wicked from the earth over centuries and centuries and millennia. This is a sudden coming. This is a sweeping coming that completely roots out the wicked from the earth in this event, this day of the Lord. Look at verse 2. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. The clear distinction between the righteous and the wicked will be seen. Now, if we fill out the fuller picture going throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, we know that this doesn't just concern Israel, but it concerns the nations as well. And we've had a little bit of that um, in the book of Malachi. But Malachi's not really focused on that. Malachi's much more focused on what's going to happen within Israel and the fact that there's, that there's a remnant and, and there's a, a, a segment of Israel that's going to be destroyed. There's a remnant that's going to be saved and there's a, a part that's going to be destroyed. But the distinction is going to be very clearly made in that day. The burning fire of judgment that roots out the wicked will also be a rising sun of righteousness that brings healing to the faithful. I can't help but think about Psalm 103 and those benefits of the Lord and the the healing of all diseases and 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 the healing from sin and all all those sort of things that take place even the healing of the earth and the reversal um, of the curse that is upon it so that the healing of the faithful will come the faithful are, are described here like stalled calves that have been let loose so they run about and they're they're leaping about in 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 the joy of the freedom that they are experiencing they've been kept sort of shut up in a, in a pen, and they've been let out, and they're running free, and they're, that's the way that he is describing the remnant in that day who experienced the healing that comes with the coming of the Son. Verse 3, And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. So the generation who experiences this day of the Lord, this remnant of Israel that will experience this day of the Lord, will see their enemies destroyed. And Israel uh, will tread on them in victory over them. Now, of course, this reinforces that this will come about in that particular day. Though this passage uses imagery, to communicate these events, real events are being described with results that will be clearly seen. So Malachi is, again, he's not describing some long, slow, hidden process that plays out over time in some mystical, spiritual sort of way. He's talking about something 
that covers the entire earth. Again, this corresponds with other Old Testament prophecies of the day of the Lord, and particularly the graphic depiction uh, and description of the actual event in Revelation chapter 19 when Jesus comes on the white horse. So the remnant of Israel will be spared, or they will be delivered. In other words, you remember earlier how the question was asked, who was going to abide? Who's going to stand the day of his coming? Israel was complaining that he had not come. This divine visitation had not taken place. They're complaining that it hasn't happened, and yet God asks him, who's going to stand? Do you think that you will stand, that you will abide the day of his coming? In other words, what, what we have seen is that the day of the Lord has two different results. On the one hand, it is a sweeping fire that's going to totally destroy everything in its path. This would be all of the arrogant wicked, be cut off out of, out of the earth, neither root nor branch left. And then the other result is that the coming will be like the dawning of a sun with healing rays of light. That, that will, um, that, that will um, bring blessing and prosperity and, and peace and all these things to them. All these many descriptions we read about that time. So who's going to stand? Psalm 1 tells us the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment. Who's going to stand? Well, obviously, those who fear the Lord are those who will stand. They will abide the day of his coming because he will spare them and they will triumph over their enemies and over all of the wicked when this judgment comes upon them. Now as we look at the last part, verses 4 to 6, and this gives us the conclusion to the book of Malachi. Verse number 4, Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb, for all Israel with the statutes and judgments so the conclusion to malachi contains an exhortation that's what we get here in verse number four and a prophetic promise in verses five and six so in this exhortation in verse four they're exhorted remember remember they're being exhorted to keep to keep to observe to do keep the old covenant law given to moses at sinai And it might sound odd as an exhortation. We have to remember, Malachi's writing, the Messiah has not yet come. He's not yet come and fulfilled the old covenant. They were still very much under it. He's writing to Israel in the land after the exile, before the coming of the Messiah, and they're very much still under the old covenant law, and they are required to keep it. This they are being told to do. Obviously, they're being told to do it in faith, looking to the coming of the Lord. It would be hard to miss that in this book. Verse number 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So now this future prophetic promise is given that Elijah will be sent before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. They were to be keeping the old covenant law, and they were to be looking for the coming of Elijah that signaled this divine 
visitation, the coming day of the Lord. Now, people oftentimes jump right from here to name Elijah as one of the two witnesses that are spoken of in the book of Revelation. And then if we make Elijah one of those two witnesses, well then, well, who's the other? Because Revelation says there's two of them. And so there's a lot of speculation about who would the other one be. And so then you get a lot of people that are pretty convinced that it's going to be Elijah and Moses or Elijah and, and, and someone. And so when you get a lot of people convinced about something, you get, a lot of, you get some other people, on the other hand, that just want to be different. And so they like to come up with all these others. And so you, you might hear John the Baptist suggested as one of these witnesses or Daniel being suggested as one of these two witnesses of Revelation. All of that, all of it, is complete speculation. And if someone is right about one of these witnesses being Elijah or being someone else, if, if somebody's right about that, it's only by accident because the Bible does not tell us that. Now, you may have a theory, and that's fine if you do, but it is speculation. The Bible does not tell us that Elijah is one of these witnesses in the book of Revelation. It merely tells us that Elijah will come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, this prophecy in the book of Malachi is one of the reasons why the scribes and the Pharisees rejected Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, because they said Elijah had to come first, and where is he? So we're not going to dive deep in, into all this, but do want to read a few things from Matthew, uh, where Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. So Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 to 13, and his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elijah must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spoke unto them of John the Baptist. So Jesus says that Elijah came, but... This restoration prophesied in this passage did not happen. He says they rejected him, did to him whatever they will, which ultimately ended up with him being beheaded. Now, if we think back to Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 to 15, and as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, talking about John the Baptist, what went ye out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if ye will receive it, this is Elijah which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear let him hear. Again, we're not going to get into um, sorting all, all this out in, in great detail. But Jesus says 
John was Elijah if they had received him, but they didn't. So in other words, Jesus' words here are certainly enough to let us know that this prophecy of God sending Elijah the prophet doesn't necessarily have to mean literally Elijah himself, Elijah the Tishbite, sent back to this earth. There's nothing that requires that. He said that John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, and he says, this was Elijah if you had received it. But they didn't receive it. So what that means is then this prophecy still stands to be fulfilled. That obviously doesn't necessarily mean that it would be Elijah, literally the the person uh, of history um, who would return to the earth. But nevertheless... One will be sent before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. When Jesus said, this is Elijah, if you will receive it, essentially he's saying that if they had embraced John and his message and the Messiah who came. If you remember later, Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem. He says, they did not know the day of their visitation. This was the divine visitation that they missed because they rejected John. So if, if they had received John, if they had received the Messiah, then the kingdom would have come then. Of course, they didn't, and they weren't going to. It was prophesied that they wouldn't. The point being that there is still prophecy here to be fulfilled, and God is going to send one, God is going to send one before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, which still has not happened yet. Verse 6 describes what will happen, what will be the work of this Elijah the prophet. It says, And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now the word for turn here means to turn back or to return. Now there are some who see here some sort of multi-generational reconciliation, that, that the generations of Israel will be reconciled together. But rather, it seems to be speaking of this restoration of Israel, so that hearts are changed, hearts are turned. Remember, we've, we've already seen this in the book of Malachi, them being told to return, them being told to, to turn back. We've looked at the, at the prophecies in Leviticus and Deuteronomy where um, their exile was prophesied, but even still when they're scattered among these nations, God will not forget them, and if they return to him, and this is the return, this restoration that we see, the repentance and restoration of Israel with their hearts being changed, and I would understand this to be a reference to being changed to the fathers like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, in faith, embracing the promises of God, meaning their Messiah in particular. If there is not a repenting and a believing remnant of Israel in that day, God says he will smite the earth with a curse. And this is actually a different word for curse than the curse that he said that, that they were under in the exile. This is God saying he would destroy the entire earth. If there is no Israel, if there is no future nation of Israel restored to that land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God says he would destroy the whole earth. Of course, there will be 
a remnant, and this prophecy, as well as many others, speak of that very thing. So the message of Malachi is like many places that we read, even in the New Testament, that encourages believers to endure, to, to persevere. Don't lose heart. Don't faint. Don't give up. Don't quit. The remnant of Israel were told, don't get distracted by the wicked. Don't be envious against them. Judgment's coming. Judgment is coming. And when judgment comes, there will be a clear distinction between the faithful and the unbelieving. It does matter whether you believe in Jesus Christ or not. And that day will reveal a great difference in those two. Now, the book of Malachi ends sort of with a cliffhanger, basically saying, get ready, he's coming. And that is the message that we have actually in this age as well, very easily applicable to us. No, we don't have the land promise and we're not Israel and, and all those sort of things, but, but just similarly as Malachi is telling them, get ready, he's coming. The message we see over and over again in the New Testament is get ready, he's coming again. Yes, he has come the first time. He didn't fulfill all of the prophecy. He fulfilled the prophecy that was for his first coming, but he still has yet prophecy, even as we've seen in the book of Malachi, still yet to be fulfilled. And he's coming again to fulfill it all. And he will make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. So much like this message is to those of Israel, to those, those who believe it's a message of encouragement, a message of comfort, it's a message of hope, and it's a message of endure and persevere and, and, and keep on, keep the faith. And to those who are unbelieving, who are half-hearted in their commitment, who half-heartedly serve the Lord thinking that they're going to be okay and gathered up with these jewels, it's a message of warning. He's coming, and when he comes, will you be able to stand? And the only ones who will stand are those who believe in him and trust in him fully for salvation.